The Midnight Disease is brought to you by your local schmacky shop. Get your granks on, Wumba Crunks. We got these Fontanelle jingle bells ready for the mm-hmm whiskey. Has somebody stippled Yogrifus? Come on, and we'll rectify that Szechuan with a boogaloo depth charge. In the plain rain of Pontchartrain, you better drunk up some dolphin shoes. Fifteen finches gonna pinch your centaur, Mr. Marmalade, and that's all the branches can bear. W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Soyuz 017 FET, better known as the Moon Unit, via the Avitas MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Friday afternoon in the universe. And welcome, friends, to the third ever episode of the Midnight Disease that's released on Friday as an addendum to the Wednesday episode, a.k.a. the artist formerly known as the Friday Show, a.k.a. the series newly rebranded as of this moment as Dingmantics. 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 Quiet. Sam Dingman's about to say something. I'm going to take a deep breath right now. A fanfare for the common dingman. Uh, it's not the Friday show anymore, by the way, as I mentioned on the Wednesday show this week, because I realized that the term the Friday show uh, had been pilfered, stolen from Mark Marin, who releases a Friday show for his WTF Plus subscribers. Um, and I didn't want to be ripping off the podfather. So uh, that's why I have switched it to Dingmantics. Um, the other thing that you probably noticed was new was the new theme song for Dingmantics. And I just wanted to quickly tell you about the backstory of that theme song because I think it's cool, which is that one day I was listening to this stack of records that a friend of mine's mom had given me. They were not, they had decided they were downsizing. They weren't going to keep their record player. They had all these old, amazing records. And she said, you can just have them. It would be more helpful to us for you to just get them out of our house than it would be for us to take the time to, I don't know, go to a used record store and uh, deal with managing the value of them and everything. I didn't really let her finish the sentence. I just kind of was like, yes, I will take this bounty. And I didn't even really look through it. I just gratefully accepted this thick stack. This was, you know, it was probably like a two foot tall stack of records. And I got it home and I was going through it. And one of the many gems that was in this stack was the Dave Van Ronk album, Folk Singer. Um, Dave Van Ronk, for those of you who don't know, is the uh, artist on whom Lewin Davis, Oscar Isaac's character in Inside Lewin Davis, was modeled and was just an amazing folk singer. <laughs> it's like, what's what's the word? Oh, how about the one he self-applied on this album? And he just was one of those performers where you got the sense that 
he had like actually fused with the style of music that he played. There was no space between the songs that he played and and him. He had become this this being that was partly human, partly song, just as his songs became happenings that were partly human, partly song. Very special, special man. And so I was very excited that I now had a copy of this record. And I put it on my record player for the first time, and there was a skip in one of the tracks. And it's the, the skip that you hear in that theme song that we just played, that doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo. I can't sing the notes properly because I have not fused uh, with my musical subconscious, but uh, it, you, heard, you just heard what I'm talking about. And at some point, I pulled out my phone and recorded that skip because I just thought it was such a beautiful trio of notes. There's so much hope and wonder and nostalgia in it. And I just loved the way it sounded. And so I recorded a loop of it skipping. And then I went to a friend of mine named Evan Viola, who's a really wonderful audio producer. And I was like, do you think you could add some some drums to this? And he was like, let me see what I can do. Uh, so he did that and made this really cool track where he added not only drums but bass. And uh, for the, our purposes here, I added some whistling over top of it. So that's how that song was made. Who among you reads the New York Times? I read this really awesome profile recently of the writer Lauren Groff. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I think it's Groff, might be Groff, G-R-O-F-F. Lauren Groff, Groff is, I'm just going to say Groff, is an amazing writer. Uh, but there was this little nugget in the profile of Lauren in The Times that is exactly the kind of anecdote that made me want to start The Midnight Disease as a project. Uh, here is the quote. When Groff starts something new, she writes it out longhand in large spiral notebooks. After she completes a first draft, she puts it in a banker's box and never reads it again. Then she'll start the book over, still in longhand, working from memory. The idea is that this way, only the best, most vital bits survive. Oh my God, I love that. In our episode with Aaron McKeown a couple weeks ago, Aaron correctly identified that the, the appeal of those little tidbits about process is that they seem like a clue to how these things that we love, these works of art that we care about so deeply and that transform our the entire framework of our lived experience, those tidbits like that, they are a clue about how this thing that is seemingly too beautiful for this world came into existence via practical means. The reason that I am fixated on this Lauren Groff anecdote, Groff, is that it reminds me of, one, um, something that Avery Truffleman said in our interview on the Midnight Disease, which was that when she's preparing for an interview, she reads 
everything that you oftentimes she's she's talking to people who have written something and so or some things books articles and so she reads all these things and she makes notes of the the elements that are really important to her and she brings those notes with her to the interview and before the interview she reads over them but that then once she starts the conversation she folds the notes up and puts them in her pocket and does not look at them during the conversation because it is a conversation and to let yourself get bogged down in the prepared notes that you have um, is to potentially miss some beautiful emotional offering or opened door that a person gives you in natural human conversation Um, and so you don't want to be too fixated too lost in your in your notes. And I find this to be a recurring theme in the practice of the people I admire most who make things is what I call uh, preparation for surrender, that there is this seemingly incongruous pairing of preparation and surrender where you as the artist do everything you can to be ready for the moment. But then in the moment, you experience it most fully and live in its richest potential by abandoning your preparation, trusting it to undergird your presence in the moment, but but prioritizing your presence in the moment more than your preparation. And since I have invoked Mark Maron already, I will say, He is perhaps one of the most extreme examples of this that I can think about. He talks all the time on his podcast about his approach to stand-up, which is that he has these fixations, these things that he knows he wants to talk about and to, to work out on stage, but that he doesn't write anything down. He's very explicit about this. He doesn't write things down. He just holds these ideas in his mind and in his heart. And the practice is that multiple nights a week, he goes up on stage and stands behind the microphone and lets those feelings come out. And as he calls it, he waits for something to be delivered. And that something comes in the form of a joke, you know, a turn of phrase that allows him to express his point of view and his sense of humor about this thing, whether he's talking about death or fascism, uh, two of his fixations. Um, But he waits for it to be delivered, as he puts it, while he is standing on stage. And then once some version of the joke has been delivered to him, again, he doesn't write it down. He goes back up there the next night and he he just waits to see if it happens again, if it comes out the same way. And over time, because he keeps going back up on stage every night, if it keeps happening a certain way and that continues to connect with the audience, he comes to trust that that is the truest version of that particular joke about death or fascism or whatever he's talking about. It never gets written down. It never gets inscribed somewhere. He relies on his preparation for that surrender in the moment to let it inscribe itself within him. 
And I don't think he's the only stand-up that works this way. I'm sure there are many other, others that do. But he is one of the most famous stand-ups, one of the, the most premier stand-up comedians who is operating at this extraordinary level of surrender. And I've been thinking about this because it's made me realize that I, taking a page literally from Avery, have realized that my Midnight Disease interviews go best when, as I have mentioned on the show before, I, I prepare as much as I possibly can for the conversation but then once I am either on video or in the room with the person I'm talking to, I trust that all of the interesting thoughts and insights that I would like to think I had as I was watching this person's movie or reading their book or listening to their music, that those things will be there. But that if I that, that the specialness of a podcast is that you are there in conversation with the person, not with the representation of the person, which is their book or their movie or their music or their podcast, but them as a, as a being. And the goal of the conversation is to understand that being's relationship to the things that they made. And if in that moment... I, as an interviewer, am existing in direct relationship with my notes about the stuff they made, well then, my, I am not surrendering to the reality of them as a person as they are showing up in the conversation. So the opportunity is lost. And I guess I have just been feeling a lot of gratitude to this project, The Midnight Disease, for helping me understand this recurrent theme of preparation for surrender, which seems to be a, I don't even want to call it a technique. It's almost like an awareness, an understanding of what is necessary spiritually and holistically to make something that is really special and unique. And it has made me want to ask all of you, what is your relationship to this idea of preparation for surrender? in your own work and process. How much do you depend on a notebook full of notes? Um, how much do you depend on a particular physical technique in your work? Do you only write with fountain pens? Do you have to um, do what Ronald Young Jr. says that he does, which is practice the piano for 10 minutes every morning to kind of... Um, loosen your mind so that it can be applied to whatever uh, you're going to be making or doing that day? Do you come down more on the side of practice or more on the side of surrender? Where are you on that spectrum? How do you experience the balance between these things? I would be so curious to know and would love to share your responses on Dingmantics next week. Uh, if you would be interested in us having that conversation as a group. So please drop me a line if this is thought-provoking to you. Midnight at W-A-L-T dot F-M. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation this week with Grace Helbig. I loved talking to Grace for so many reasons, and many of the things that she said in our conversation have been 
reverberating in my mind. But one of the biggest ones is this idea where she talked about coming to this awareness of social media platforms as tools as opposed to creative responsibilities, which I took to mean, and I'm obviously, this is going to be inflected by my own experience in dealing with social media platforms, is that especially as somebody who wants to make art in the modern digital era, there is this sense that you have to have a presence on the platforms, that it would be irresponsible to not be using Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever it is, to get your work out there. And that committing to making things on these platforms is part of what you're signing up for by being an artist. And that is, the more I think about it, madness. The thought I have been circling around this week is that there is something so anti-art about that sense of responsibility. Because the implication is that the art in and of itself is not really worthy of attention. It is only when the art is placed on one of these platforms, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, it is only when it is placed there where the eyes are, where the cultural attention is, that it may find an audience, which cultivates this notion that the platform is the ultimately the thing of value, not the work. The platform's ability to help the work find an audience that is the value, goes, goes this logic, which then, of course, means that the work, which may not have anything to do with the type of attention that exists on a platform like TikTok or on Instagram, you know, for example, if, if the work takes more than a minute and a half to engage with. So what happens is that there's this, this very pernicious idea that the work not only has to be on the platform in order to find an audience, but in fact ought to be tailored to the aesthetics of the platform, ought to be only a minute and a half long, ought to be filled with animation and color and kinetic energy, ought to be pithy and sarcastic, ought to be angry and combative and or inspirational, whatever the tone that tends to be most resonant on this platform is. The work ought to be changed to suit the needs of the platform because to have success on the platform is to be a successful artist. No! That is terrible. We should not be submitting to this. It's nuts. Because when we do that, what are we doing? We're working for the platform. We are helping the platform tune its algorithm more precisely so that it can sell the attention of all the people on the platform to advertisers more effectively and ultimately make itself rich. That is all the platform cares about. The platform does not care about your work. One of my favorite, other favorite parts of the conversation with Grace is the part where she talked about Let's look at the language that gets used on these, on these platforms, right? Like 
TikTok, Instagram. It, it's this false idea that time is of the essence and, and there isn't enough of it. So you have to make things that, that are the most punchy and impactful in the smallest amount of time. Efficiency, that's, that's the key. She was encouraging us in the interview to, to think of these platforms as tools, not as responsibilities. That it is not our responsibility as artists to empire build on these platforms. And the way that she talked about it made me want to consider the, the word platform itself. Twitter is a platform. Instagram is a platform. YouTube is a platform. And platforms are meant to lift things up, to support things. So... I think it is a really important question for all of us who consider ourselves to be artists and have to interact with these platforms in some way to really stop for a second and think, how is this platform supporting my work? Not how is my work supporting the platform? How is the platform supporting my work? And just to speak personally about this for a second, I, I have mentioned a couple times that I have started writing on Substack. And the reason that I started writing on Substack is because I was having this recurrent feeling with the midnight disease where I would put all this care and effort and love into making the episodes every week. And I came to believe that I had this responsibility to promote the show on Instagram and TikTok because that's in the zeitgeist where people promote things, where people see things, how people discover things. And The Midnight Disease is a slow burn show. I know this. I know that that's what it is. And I'm fine with that. I'm not bothered by that. I want it to be a deep sit, which means that the, the challenge and the prospect of combing through these hour-long conversations to look for the best 45-second clip that I possibly can find, go through the very intensive work of downloading this huge video file and then finding that 45-second clip, isolating it, exporting it, uploading it into a different video editing program that applies captions to the clip, making sure that the captions correctly match the mouth movement um, on the video, then taking this 45-second clip with captions over top of it, which can I just say, it's already a betrayal of the podcast. The podcast is intended to be something that you listen to, that you sit and listen to for a long time. And I have taken a 45-second clip, robbed it of all of its surrounding context, made the inherent assumption that nobody is going to think it's worth taking the time to listen to it. So I've put this ugly text over top of it uh, to make it so that you can take the shortcut of not even bothering to engage with the intended form of expression of this thing, which is to listen to it. And then I upload that little 45-second clip onto Twitter and Instagram, places where I barely post anything because it's just not my preferred form of expressing myself. And then I sit and I watch as these little video clips that I have labored and sweated over don't perform well. And I get upset 
and mad. And it makes me think that the podcast isn't good or successful or interesting because it's not performing well in this environment, which is specifically designed to reject all of the foundational aesthetic and thematic ideas that the podcast is built on. That is ridiculous. Why Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? So I had that realization that that was ridiculous, but then I thought, like, well, how else am I supposed to promote the show other than just hoping people find it? And then I remembered that Substack exists as a thing. And so I looked into it, and what is Substack? Substack, there are no ads on it. It is a very simple platform that is built around words and long-form writing. And generally speaking, writing of a personal, diaristic, insightful, contemplative type. And I thought like, oh, that's exactly (laughs) the way that I like to write. That's exactly the kind of space that I'm trying to create on the midnight disease. It would make so much more sense for me to invest my creative energy on Substack than it would to do it in these places that are alien environments, moonscapes, to the type of expression that I would like to put into the world. And so I signed up for Substack, and I signed up for Substack also because I was just looking for a place to put writing that would feel good, not even necessarily to promote the podcast. And I wrote my first Substack post which was a reflection on my journaling practice. And I put it up. And this is the main thing that I want to say about this. I put up that first post and I just felt good. I felt really good that there was this container that allowed me to express my thoughts about this practice that I do, I will say, consider sort of sacred in my life, and that it was a medium where I could write thoughtfully about that and explore those feelings. And I had this thought, like, I actually don't care if anybody reads this. I just feel really good that I got it down on virtual paper. I just feel good having written this little essay slash diary entry, which is so different than the feeling of frustration and outrage and despair (laughs) that I have whenever I put up an Instagram post or a TikTok post. So, one, I have limited days and nights on this earth. Why would I spend any of them doing something that I know is going to fill me with frustration, outrage, and despair? I ought instead to be spending those days and nights, expressing myself in places where it feels good to do so. But then there was also this byproduct of that, which I've been very grateful for, which is that people so far seem to really like the Substack. I've gotten so many lovely emails from people who have read it and expressed appreciation for for what I've been putting there. And That, of course, is the experience I have always hoped that I could get from an Instagram post. Um, But obviously that wasn't going to happen on Instagram because I'm bringing poisoned, misdirected energy to Instagram. I think, for the moment, 
Substack is the right platform to lift up the type of art that I am already making. I'm not making new art because I think it would do well on Substack. I think Substack is a place where the kind of thing that is important to me to do is well supported. So it has been very revelatory for me to think about these things in this way. And I, of course, thank Grace for introducing me to this line of thinking when it comes to these platforms. And I would love it if you followed my Substack, if you sub- or subscribed to my Substack, whatever the Substackers say. It's samdingman.substack.com. Just one more thing I wanted to talk about on this installment of Dingmantics, which is that I was very grateful that The Midnight Disease was featured in the most recent installment uh, of podcast, The Newsletter, which is written by Lauren Passel, who is a really sharp observer of the podcast medium. You can find Podcast The Newsletter on Substack. Anyway, in this week's issue of Podcast The Newsletter, Lauren wrote about our conversation here on The Midnight Disease with Ronald Young Jr., um, talking about his podcast, Wait For It. And so you may remember that in that episode, I expressed that Ronald expressed in Wait For It something that I had never really heard before, which is this idea that wait and the self-perception that develops because of wait becomes the defining characteristic of one's personality and that I had experience with that that I could not previously name until I heard Ronald's show, um, and I was expressing gratitude to him for capturing that. So Lauren, in reaction to that part of the episode, writes, quote, Sam mentioned that this was the first time he had ever heard someone admit that their entire life had been defined by their size. This was shocking for me to hear. Women have realized this and are reminded of this realization any time they go online or look in the mirror or try on clothes or don't want to be photographed or go to the doctor or think back to a time their size was holding them back. It is revolutionary that men are hearing this. So... I just wanted to say, first off, thank you, Lauren, so much for listening to the show in such a close and considered way. And thank you for sharing this observation, because it made me realize that I thought in that moment that I was expressing something potentially sort of universal, this idea that weight could be the defining building block in a personality. And what Lauren's comment made me realize is that I was not being conscious of the different ways that women have to deal with people's perception of their weight versus the way that men do. It made me think about this idea that it, it, it seems much more likely to me that whereas a man, if he is not overweight— might not get much commentary about his weight at all, that it's only when he becomes overweight that people start to direct negative judgment and comments towards him and and that that could be foundational to a personality. Whereas for women, it seems much more likely to me that in our terrible culture, 
no matter what a woman's weight is, someone has a comment about it. Even if it's a positive comment about a woman, say, not weighing very much, that could create this perception that a woman's entire value is in maintaining that low weight, even if that's not the most healthy thing for her or the thing that feels best to her. And so there is just this different interaction with the concept of judgment around weight than I was being cognizant of when I said that in the Ronald Young Jr. interview. So I wanted to say thank you to Lauren for for pointing that out. And um, I hope that when I said that in the episode, I didn't make anybody feel excluded or like I wasn't taking their experience into account because I know this is a really sensitive subject. And really, this is one of the things that's so valuable about the work that Ronald's doing is he's talking about this thing that, as you can hear from me stumbling through this right now, is is really hard to, to talk about. And if I have mangled it in this attempt to address it, let me know. Midnight at WALT.FM. That is the email address where, once again, I would love to know about your relationship to surrender or anything else this episode has made you think about. Thank you to everybody who has been listening to the show. I appreciate you so much. I hope you enjoyed this installment of Digmantics. I hope you will subscribe to my Substack, samdingman.substack.com. And as always, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I will talk to you on Wednesday. And until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.